0: Oh, show me the way to go home, I'm tired and I want to go to bed, I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it's gone right to my head, wherever I may roam, on land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing a song, show me the way to go home.
1: Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Illyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today?
0: Ah, yes. I've been waiting to do that all day. <laughs> I've got a can of Club Tropica from Tiny Rebel. I might have drunk this on the podcast before. Can't remember. It's, it's, busy it's my literally the here. last step.
1: Yeah, literally the last episode you had that, so. <laughs> oh God. Um, <laughs> extra God, points for consistency. I'm on it
0: today. I'm thinking about space.
1: <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> there is a lot of there is a lot of space going on in your head today. I can tell. It's all uh, space. In that, in that spirit, I am drinking a can of Old Mate by Moon Dog Brewery, who are based in Melbourne. I actually received them in my January Beer 52 delivery, but I saw that it was space-related and I knew this episode was coming up, so I saved it like a good boy. Mm
0: -hmm. I drank mine in like a day. Yeah. (laughs) I always do. It was nice, though. Do you think if we say uh, Beer 52 enough, they'll sponsor us?
1: Either that or we'll get flagged for other reasons. <laughs> Seasoned a assist. Season season yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, so this episode we're going to talk about space drinks, the influence of space on drinks and maybe vice versa. I think the right place to start is sort of in the midst of the space race and what NASA and Co. were up to. In terms of did we you know when did we manage to get the first drinks into space? Are astronauts allowed to get squiffy? So there was not a lot of room for this in the original um, Apollo missions, for example. You know everything was uh, well. <laughs> everything was kind of made to fit and last. So you had all these like dry cubes of processed food and nothing that would resemble anything you'd want to eat and there wasn't any drink up there at that point either and it was all you know just about efficiency and making sure people could survive up in there but once we hit the early 70s kind of the head of the um of the mission decided to try and live on the food on earth by himself for the three days And he was like, this would drive me insane. If I had to live on this, this is absolutely disgusting. We need to do something about it.
0: (laughs) Well, it's funny you say that because I used to work in the science museum. And in the gift shop there, they used to sell. I mean, it was quite gimmicky, but it used to sell quite well. They had two different types of, like, astronaut space food. And it was dried strawberries and dried ice cream. And people lapped that shit up. They loved it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it's what nice. started coming in the 70s. <laughs> you didn't get the ice cream until the 70s. It was even worse mm-hmm. than that beforehand, all the, all the dried oh, packages. Lord. So this was part okay, of the yeah the investment in having better food as they started to get things like ice cream. Uh, and in addition to that, they also appointed a space sommelier, which is hmm. such a fancy role. Uh, Dream job. Yeah, exactly. It came Please. down to a guy called Charles Burland, um, who had been spending, he spent more than three decades at um, the NASA Space Center developing food packages for spaceflight and so forth. He, he writes about it in the Astronaut's Cookbook. Uh, so I've got a bit to read out for you, which will describe kind of uh, what happened around that time. So he says my boss was mormon and consequently the job of heading the wine selection process for the skylab missions fell to me skylab was like their first uh, space station selecting a wine was an interesting project for the people in the food laboratory and we had no shortage of volunteers for the taste panel after consulting with several professors at the university of california at davis it was decided that a sherry would work best because any wine flown would have to be repackaged Sherry is a very staple product, having been heated during the processing. Thus, it would be the least likely to undergo changes if it were to be repackaged. The winner of that space Sherry taste test was Paul Masson, California Rare Cream Sherry. So they went with something, you know, national. it says a quantity of this Rare Cream Sherry was ordered for the entire Skylab mission and was delivered to the Johnson Space Center. The package was developed that consisted of a flexible plastic pouch. With a built-in drinking tube, which could be cut off, and then the astronaut would just squeeze squeeze the bag and drink the wine from the package.
0: <laughs> I love a bag of wine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean the bag of wine I normally see you with is when you can get go to the supermarket and get like the box <laughs> of wines, but you can cut you can take the yep. inside liner out of the box and then sort of secrete it yep. better about your person, I suppose. Was that what you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, at festivals, I've been known to have a bag of wine that I've pulled out of the box, put it in a tote bag, cut the corner of the tote bag off, and you can stick the little nozzle out and have your own little wine dispensing tote bag, like some kind of festival goddess.
1: <laughs> like an alcoholic Capri Sun.
0: <laughs> I prefer festival goddess myself.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Well, we've got our own versions of that, haven't we? Um, So, as we've kind of discussed before, sherry is a good idea for long-distance travelling, because not only does it keep its flavour, it can improve its flavour with the motions uh, that we talked about when we went pirating. Alas, the sherry never made it into space. They did some tests on NASA's low-gravity plane, otherwise known as the Vomit Comet, (laughs) And that was to see kind of how it would fare in the weightless
0: conditions.
1: (laughs) And the report from that was, as it turned out, the odours released by the wine, combined with the residual smell of years worth of people getting sick on the plane, has an unplanned effect on the crew, many grabbed for their bath bags. So um, the test didn't go well. And as they sort of did more research into it, they did survey the NASA crew and it came back about half and half. As to whether they wanted any alcohol on board, half of them didn't really care, and the other half were like, "Yes, please," which I think is a very American reaction to have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the kind of nail in the coffin for it, really, as a project, was when they when they released this information to the public. They said in a in a press release in a public lecture, "Oh, we're working on all these things with food and drink, including um, some alcohol." And the public really didn't like the idea. They saw it as such a, um, uh, a sort of honourable, pure mission thing, you know, fly into space. And alcohol didn't fit with their idea of them being heroes. So there was a lot of protest and kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, sentiment against sending alcohol into space. So they just really dropped the plan. And for NASA, there it's kind of stayed but um, not so with the Russians. <laughs> of course not. As you would imagine.
0: <laughs> so I was in the
1: other half of the space race with, was with the USSR, the Russian cosmonauts. And it's, it's kind of been observed by many people that they drink vodka and cognac and champagne and even ginseng liqueur when they're up in space. If they have any on the International Space Station, we don't. there's no proof of it. Some people have said, "Oh yes, they do. They just hide it really well." But it hasn't actually ever been recorded or found. We do have a photograph of them drinking on Mir, which was the uh, Russian space station, and there was a big fire on it in 1997. And after they managed to put it out, quite rightly, they felt like celebrating. So there's a picture of them uh, drinking <laughs> cognac, like all in in zero g, drinking uh, cognac on Mir in 97. <laughs>
0: with like sli- slightly scorched faces
1: <laughs> yeah exactly you could picture it can't you it's very cartoony um i mean who's who's to know whether the cognac was the cause in the first place we don't know um no it wasn't but uh, yeah this this photo only came to light because of a freedom of information request so it, it would have the proof of it would have been hidden um but someone sort of submitted a request because they already knew what the um, evidence number of it was so, uh, they are they are still kind of, you know, known for being drunkers up in the space station. But there's become a bit of a renewed interest in whether we should allow it and what will make the best drinks in space because of space tourism, which is now becoming a real thing with the likes of Virgin Galaxy and SpaceX and so forth. Um, I think if you, as a member of the public, who is paying an extraordinary amount to go into low orbit you're gonna want a nice glass of something while you're up there it's you know and we know from from airlines as well that wine is huge business in um Mm -hmm. you know in aircraft as well we should do an episode on that one day
0: i think i've already solved it just give everyone a tote bag of wine up in space done (laughs)
1: I mean the vomit comment suggested that didn't go too well. So um <laughs> not sure it's worth worth worthy of my uh, money on Indiegogo yet, but I'll, I'll bear it in mind. Uh there's there's actually a fairly legitimate reason why you might want to allow wine in space. And uh, apart from the obvious benefits of it helping people just to chill out <laughs> and have a nice, nice, relaxing evening. Um is that red wine in particular, so alas, not not sherry or white wine, has something in it called resveratrol. Resveratrol is a chemical that you find on fruit skins, particularly grapes, um, raspberries, blueberries, and peanuts as well, actually. And resveratrol is purported to have a number of health benefits, but the relevant study that was done quite recently into rats that were being suspended to uh, simulate 0g is that it massively reduces muscle wastage. Now muscle wastage is a huge problem when people go into 0g. Their their muscles like they they looked at the calf muscle that shrinks by a third when you're up there and resveratrol almost halts that completely. So they're looking into ways that they can use that drug to Uh, prevent muscle wastage in things that when you're in zero g you just don't really use very much like your legs Uh, but for now my recommendation is if you're going into space just do make sure you've taken some nice cabernet with you
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean we've kind of done that before but it was when we went on a bus (laughs) and it was a bottle of malbec right
1: (laughs) but yeah a bottle of malbec on a bus just to counteract the effects of being on the on the top of the double decker.
0: Exactly. And we would we weren't using our legs very much either.
1: No, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> all right. What have, what have you got for me? That's sort of my entry to drinks in space, which is they tried it. It didn't work. Some people have snuck it aboard. We're now looking at some legitimate options. What legitimate legitimate options can we find?
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to chat about drinks that are kind of have been to space in some way, shape or form. So it's. I'm just going to go straight into it. So um, the first drink I've got is a gin called Moonshot Gin. Um, So what they've done, they've sent all of the botanicals into space Um, So it was sent to near space, it's over 24 kilometres they've sent it out, which I thought didn't sound that much, 24 kilometres, especially because they call it near space, not space. But um, 24 kilometres, like the air pressure there is seriously low, it's like one hundredth of that at sea level. So to put that into context, if you were to find yourself just above 18 kilometres from Earth... Uh, that's known as Armstrong's Limit, and that's where all the fluids in your body completely vaporise. Oh, so I don't want that to happen. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> let them just send the botanicals up, bring it back, and then um, they distill them at room temperature and then make a lovely gin out of it. Um, so they use juniper, coriander, chamomile flowers, fresh lemon peel, cardamom, dried bitter, orange peel... Cinnamon, cuba peta, ugh, cuba peta, I can't speak again. Cuba p- pepper, <laughs> that's a really hard thing to say. Cuba pepper, licorice root, and angelica. And then the last Nazi ingredient for the botanicals was moon rock. Because otherwise, why are you making a space drink if you're not putting something spacey in there?
1: Actual moon rock? Mm hmm. What do Fancy. It, does that make the gin taste cheesy? Because the moon is made of cheese, I as don't know we if you've know. ever
0: been to the moon, but... Well, I mean... I don't think it's made of cheese.
1: What?
0: I, 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 so should we move on? I don't want to ruin your dreams.
1: Oh, the clangers D- lied to me.
0: Yep. Dicks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> do we actually do we know, like, if it has any effect at all on the flavour? Or is it just, like, um, no, a gimmicky thing? No,
0: so the, f- the flavour... Um, I think it is more gimmicky, because the flavour... Um, what I've read, it's got like a a zesty lemon flavour. The lemon peel seems to come through everything, which is interesting considering it's got licorice root in there, which is a strong flavour. So, yeah, I don't think it adds to the flavour. It's just something they can say. Um, The next drink. um, Mm -hmm. So there's a bar in London called Mr. Fogg's Residence. I've not been there.
1: I've been to a Mr Fogg's which is near Leicester Square which may be the one.
0: Might be. I'm not sure if they've got more than one. Um but in 2012 they teamed up with Bombas and Parr. Mhm. I love Bombas and Parr. They're two crazy men who just do wacky things with food and drinks and they have like these experiences that you can buy tickets to um, I was lucky enough to go to one a few years ago and they took us to like a townhouse in the middle of London and you started from the basement and as you worked you went way up you went kind of through the different ages and you looked at how the higher-class people would indulge themselves in food and show off with this that and the other started at the bottom where I had to go and see a witch doctor on a pirate ship who told me I had scurvy <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I mean did you was this an insight
0: <laughs> I, p- I probably did I st- I'm <laughs> still like I didn't go for a second opinion I think that says enough right <laughs> <laughs> um but he prescribed me a cocktail which I enjoyed um but one other amazing drink that I had in that Bombas and Par experience was um it was like a, um dissected glass of champagne not not a set what do you call deconstructed. it deconstructed you know, like, deconstructed bloody hell i'm on it today a deconstructed <laughs> glass of champagne where they handed me a flute uh with completely flat champagne in it and then perched on top of it on a cocktail stick was like the fattest grape you've ever seen in your life and you had to take a swig of the champagne then pop that massive grape in your mouth and bite into it and they basically put all the gas into the grape, so it burst in your mouth and made it all fizzy, so it's like you had champagne. Sounds it was dangerous. cool. I didn't gag, I was proud.
1: How how big was this explosion? <laughs> <laughs> I've never known you <laughs> Ah,
0: Anyway, so they teamed up with Bombers and Par. Because they said, we want to be the first bar to offer a space-aged cocktail. So what they did was sent um, some bitters up 27 kilometres, so a bit further than those gin botanicals. Mm -hmm. Um, They sent them up above the Earth's surface. Uh, It took two hours and 15 minutes to complete the journey, uh, reaching temperatures as low as minus 57. Uh, And when they got the bitters back, they used them in a cocktail, which they were calling From the Earth to the Stars. Uh, so it was vermouth, Campari, Tanqueray gin, fresh lavender, grapefruit, orange, and lemon peel, fresh chamomile, and angelica root. So similar flavours to the mm-hmm. botanicals in that gin. Um, any guesses how much the cocktail would cost? Well, how much would you pay for that?
1: Typical <laughs> London, as I say, typical London cocktail. I'd be willing to pay about eight pounds, <laughs> given that they've had <laughs> right. to pay for this to go into space. I'm going to say about 20 quid.
0: Mm, bit more. If I chuck a certificate in that says... A
1: certificate? 100.
0: Oh God, no. 25.
1: Oh, I was going to pay £100 for a certificate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, I'll let them know. This champ will pay 100 quid for a certificate cocktail. But yeah, you just get a little certificate that says that you've had the, the first space-aged cocktail in London. Nice. Um, And then another one, we've got a distillery, the Ardbeg Distillery. They wanted to send some whiskey into space. Um, Mm -hmm. But from what I can gather, it didn't go well. (laughs) I mean, they they accomplished it. They sent it. They got it back. Mm -hmm. But um, here are the tasting notes. I know we don't do tasting notes on this podcast, but... Well, you frequently it. do,
1: but yeah, um, we will try not to. Yeah, we do.
0: We always say, "I know we don't do tasting notes, and then we give tasting notes." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, point,
1: here, the point. The point is, we, we, <laughs> yeah. The point is, we don't want the central premise to be like, "I like drinks." Do you like drinks? Yes.
0: Okay. Thanks.
1: <laughs> but occasionally, Bye. we can't. We can't help but describe how something tastes.
0: <laughs> well, when I read it, you'll you'll thank me for it. Right. Here are the tasting notes for the. Uh, the space whiskey. They call it Galileo whiskey, which I thought was quite cute. Um hints of antiseptic smoke, rubber, and smoked fish, along with a curious perfumed note like violet or cassis, a powerful woody tone leading to a meaty aroma. And they describe yeah. the aftertaste as intense and long.
1: <laughs> well, I'm gonna I'm gonna thank you for that intense and long um description. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I can picture all of it in a whiskey profile, apart from the fishy bit. I, I don't. I'm not sure. I want space fish in my whiskey.
0: I don't think I want any whiskey or any spirit that smells like meat, really.
1: No, but I know what they would mean by that. They're kind of. Mm. They're saying like, on top of everything, it's got an umami taste. I'm guessing, but fish mm. is something I don't. I don't really want. <laughs> like
0: they, they obviously don't. Um, advertise it with these tasty notes This was right. like, from reviews <laughs> No I can imagine They obviously describe it as groundbreaking on their website <laughs> Sure <laughs> It's
1: going to break a lot of stuff guys
0: <laughs>
1: It's not really groundbreaking though is it It's more atmosphere penetrating It's the opposite it, It's, it's literally the opposite of groundbreaking They've gone further away from the ground They <laughs> haven't broken it at all
0: I think if they can call that groundbreaking, I can call my homemade Prosecco groundbreaking. That was special. I
1: think if they could do that, you can call your homemade Prosecco a drink.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You are so harsh. You didn't even get to try it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I could tell by your reaction it was because I've seen you do a lot worse. I've seen you put worse in your mouth, and that one seemed horrific. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> ah, next mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so this one is from a brewery we've probably all heard of, Bridgeport uh, Famously known for their Bridgeport IPA which is delicious um, They're a Portland based brewery and they didn't go for anything too fancy they just said, right, we've got some perfectly good IPA, let's just whack it in space and see what happens Um they had a bit of a DIY approach. They used a balloon. Like not like a helium balloon. I like, it was obviously a bit more than that. They probably ordered something off Amazon. <laughs> and uh put the craft beer in a cooler with the two bottles. Um they did think a little bit sensibly, I thought, right, we'll depressurize the bottles first. So they put those in the cooler, sent it up twenty two miles into the air. Um and it landed 55 miles from where it started. Um, a lot of people said, oh, it's just a gimmick, you know, so you're not doing it properly. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, well, actually, no, we ha- we have had clearance from the FAP. We're taking this very seriously. <laughs> um, but yeah, it just landed 55 miles from where they sent it. And then they were like, yeah, we've got to drink this for science, you know. <laughs> <laughs> drink um, for science. <laughs> <laughs> for science. Uh it was to mark their twenty-second anniversary of the brewery being open, which is why they said it twenty-two miles in the air. Um, but yeah, I might try that one day if I can send my prosecco up for science.
1: <laughs> See if it can. It can only be improved, surely.
0: It was pretty depressurised, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know the thing about there's there's always a lot of criticism of this seems a bit pointless when it comes to you know space travel and science in space and a lot of science actually but science doesn't have to have an end goal in mind the whole point is to do an experiment and make observations and by doing that we discover wonderful things so i'm never i'm i'm never of the opinion that an experiment is pointless even if it's ridiculous you never know what you might discover
0: <laughs> could be groundbreaking like the Galileo whiskey it smells <laughs> like fish
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm not going to get into marketing hyperbole, but I still think science is worth doing for no reason whatsoever. Um, how about some sci-fi? Should we do some sci-fi? Sure, let's do it. If you are a sci-fi nerd and you like drinking, and who isn't, then you might want to visit StarTrekWines.com, which is a website I have discovered. Um... Only delivers in the US, unfortunately, but it's still worth a look. Because for a mere $190, you can buy four bottles of wine, which include the United Federation of Planets Sauvignon Blanc, individually numbered bottles, the United Federation of Planets Old Vines Zinfandel, the Klingon Blood Wine Cabernet Sauvignon, and the Chateau Picard Cru Bordeaux. So I'm going oh, to fancy. tell you about a couple of these. Um, the first is the way they describe the Klingon blood wine, which is they say we utilise the same ancient methods as the great Klingon vintners, <laughs> <laughs> which, which you know, um, in any sort of regulated. Uh, industry, you might think, can they get away with that? That's not a real thing. What were those methods? <laughs> but it's fun anyway. But it does have like a, a real person behind it. And Andrew Nelson is the winemaker who is a 2020 wine enthusiast, 40 under 40, 40, under 40 tastemaker. Um, so from what I can <laughs> tell of the quality of these wines, they are a lot better than you might expect something that's kind of branded as, as kitsch to be. Um, Klingon blood wine, by the way, in the Star Trek universe um, is a is a popular beverage among the Klingons. But also some of the non-Klingon um, inhabitants uh, try it as well. It's apparently twice as strong as whiskey. So whenever the, the various captains give it a go, it usually knocks them out somewhat. But they also yes. will mix cocktails with it as well. So they have a Klingon martini. Which is what you would expect—vermouth, <laughs> gin, but with a dash of blood wine to make it extra alcoholic and pink. Ooh.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: There are—you can go down a real rabbit hole of all the drinks that are in Star Trek. For some reason, they seem to pay a lot of attention to it. If you want something really strong, you tend to go for the Klingon variety, but they have all sorts of uh, drinks. <laughs> In this universe, I guess because they have decided that chilling out in space is really important.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I'm going to tell you... Well, the Russians about... would agree. The Russians definitely agree. I mean, I think if we've learned anything, it's that the Russia is going to be the one to eventually found um, the... <laughs> what are they called? That's terrible. The, the Federation... <laughs> <laughs> i've watched it i promise we got
0: there slow clap
1: oh yeah i know right <laughs> just to prove it when i saw um the bottle chateau picard pop up on this website i thought i bet that's a legitimate thing from the chateau picard uh, vineyard and it was i went onto the wine site and i looked and this is the only bottle that you can actually buy in the uk for about 20 quid i think um hmm. And that's because that one does come from a... I mean, they all come from proper vineyards, but this one comes from a vineyard in France uh, that's been going since 1892. And a new company bought this in 1997. And it's um, this one in particular is Cabernet Sauvignon, um, 85% and then it's um, aged in an oak barrel as well. Usually between 8 and 15 years. And it's um, a claret. It's called bright and fresh and zingy and all that kind of business. But it's it's a historic vineyard taken very seriously and apparently very nice wine. But the reason I said I bet this is a real one is because I watched the recent series that was out last year, I think it was, that followed the latter years of Captain Picard, uh, Jean-Luc Picard. Mm -hmm. And the beginning of the series, he's in retirement. He's retired Um, from captaining and zooping around in space and instead he's living on the Picard vineyard Uh, so he is a (laughs) winemaker in his retirement and you you kind of uh, see him all amongst his vines drinking his wine and his old grey tea and other things Uh, but that's how they sort of pitch this vineyard in France is they say it's the future vineyard of Captain Picard (laughs) but you can get in on it early doors
0: they're going to get so many nerds there,
1: yeah. I'm sure they do very well. It's an, it's an excellent idea. Um, uh, did you find anything sci-fi in your character? I mean, there was a lot of stuff to choose from, but I just picked that one out because I thought that was the most legit.
0: So <laughs> much stuff. So much stuff. Uh, on a more personal note, I've actually had recently some Star Wars beer. Um I should have known from the start it wasn't going to be great because I found it in, it's either B&M or Home Bargains and it was about 89 pence for a can.
1: <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that the kind of shop um, where, and you have to forgive me for not knowing, but I don't go to a shop, um, <laughs> <laughs> not, not in your century, but isn't that the kind of place where you buy like homewares and stuff?
0: Yeah, I mean, you go in (laughs) and you have like, (laughs) you have like food stuffs first. Then you have one aisle of like pet stuff. Then you have a couple of aisles of booze, and then yeah, just homeware, just random stuff. It's it's like a really (laughs) bad Amazon with booze and food.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So you went and bought a fee, not even like. A generic beer, a themed beer from this place that probably shouldn't be selling beer anyway. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: exactly that. Um, It was about 69 or 89p for a can of Stormtrooper beer. And it it looked really garish. It was like a lot of yellowy orange and blue on the can and a Stormtrooper. And it was so bad. Like, we were saying earlier that you've seen me put a lot of bad things in my mouth, but... I couldn't drink it, I had like one or two sips, and i I really, really tried, but i couldn't I couldn't drink it. It was bad, and I feel sad because like I've seen a lot of people since buy it for like the dad's figure or you know Dad's uncle's mm-hmm. grandfather's husbands who were Star Wars fans for Christmas, or oh, we'll get him some of that Star Wars beer we saw It's so bad, poor men, there's gonna be a lot of men across the country like. Grimacing their way through that thing that their kids or wife has bought them and gone, Mmm, nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um So horrible beer aside, I'm gonna talk about the Star Wars bar.
1: What's the Star Wars bar?
0: Well, mm-hmm. like famously there's the Star Wars bar, which is August Cantina. It's pretty much the only thing I really know from Star Wars.
1: I had no idea what you were doing, so I just let you run by it. So, in
0: 2019, Disney announced that they would be opening a Star Wars bar, which was exciting for many reasons because, one, all the Star Wars nerds were going crazy, but for everyone else, uh, it was the first time you could get alcohol in um, Disneyland.
1: What? You're telling me for yes. decades, sober parents had to take their small children around Disneyland and tolerate
0: it? Yeah. In Disneyland, Florida, yeah. I know that in Japan, you can freely buy booze and walk around the park with it and have a great day out. Um But there is a caveat with the Star Wars bar. You have to consume the alcohol on the site of the bar itself. You can't take it and walk around the park with it. Is
1: there a sign up behind the bar saying chin (coughs) it?
0: There better be. (laughs) When I open my bar, there will be. (laughs) Um, So the Star Wars bar, they have themed cocktails and drinks, of course. Um, So, and I like the name. The first one is called The Outer Rim. Um, you child an <laughs> it's an exotic margarita with a black salt rim mm-hmm. uh, there's also a really really nice sounding rum punch called yub nub a sweet fruity passion fruit rum punch uh, the jedi mind trick is a grapefruit concoction burst in with sweet and sour notes uh, they also have craft beers on tap the bard motivator IPA and white wampa ale Interesting they don't have the shitty Star Wars beer on tap, eh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for the non-alcoholic drinkers, you can have a Blue banther, which is a glass of blue milk topped with a cookie. If I'd watched Star Wars, that's a par- apparently a thing. I think Luke Skywater drank it or something. Skywater? you called him Skywater? <laughs> that That,
1: um... That less less Skywalker you know, Sky, had some milk.
0: Yeah, and his dad. Dust are you Vader sure you didn't something?
1: like watch a Korean knockoff?
0: I'm <laughs> so I'm Not, so bad not convinced Star you've Wars. seen this. So old Luke Skywalker yeah. drank a glass of blue milk.
1: <laughs> great, you great story. Thanks, Star Wars
0: yeah. Oh my god, people are going to come at me so much after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also get. Black Spire Cold Brew, which is a themed coffee. Don't know what Black Spire is either. Might as well stop there. They've got a Droid (laughs) DJ in the end.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like the sound of the Droid DJ. That was the only bit that I thought, well, the ability to drink in Disneyland and the Droid DJ is what I took away from that.
0: Yeah. If I ever found myself in Disneyland, I'd just be in the Star Wars bar drinking the Outer Rim for a while.
1: Well, on that note, um, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to talk a little bit about containers in space. In
0: space! I bet we're so out of whack saying that because the internet is so bad. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I could try and align it later on in the editing, but it might be funnier to leave it as we're hearing it. Um <laughs> So, as I said, space tourism is becoming such a thing. I have noticed that there's a lot of collaborations going on between either space design companies or travel companies and things like brewers. So, like Vostok Space Beer, which is a joint venture between this Australian brewing company Four Pines and a space engineering firm called Save Astronautics. And so what they've done is created both a beer to be consumed in space and also pay special attention to the bottle that it comes in. So they observed that alcohol absorption um, is different in space. The tongue swells, the sense is dull, it alters the way food and drink tastes. And they describe... Um, Something called a wet burp, which is when you belch Ooh. both gas and liquid into that zero G.
0: Isn't that just a little vomit? Like a cheeky... Cheeky vom. vom.
1: Little... Little... I think I'd call it a vom. sicky burp. <laughs> yeah. But I think these uh, are. <laughs> I think these are slightly different, otherwise they wouldn't have noted it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sicky burps. It just doesn't sound scientific enough, it, does it? It doesn't. Well, you observed a sicky burp. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> so they said without gravity, any liquid is going to be difficult to drink in space uh, without resorting to using straws or squeezy tubes. But carbonated drinks like beer are even harder because of the way that bubbles form in zero gravity, which kind of makes it uncomfortable to drink. So, they created a couple of prototypes made from um, plastic, but based on the technology in the actual fuel tanks of the rocket. And the way it sort of works is it uses a special insert that uses the surface tension to wick the beer up from the bottle of the bottle into the mouthpiece so you can actually drink it normally. So, yeah, it wicks it up with surface tension instead rather than you having to tuck it through a straw. Which is interesting, and they put their project on Indiegogo to raise money. But that's one of the examples I've seen. Another one I saw recently was Champagne Mum, and they wanted to again, it's the carbonated drinks that are trying to solve the problems first and foremost because they're the easiest ones (laughs) to just discard, I suppose. Uh, But they launched a new fizz. They um, had a bottle and accompanying glasses that were specially adapted for consumption in zero-G. They called it the Grand Cordon Stella. And it took them three years to work on with uh, space design specialists, Spade. And so the clear glass bottle is using the pressure within the bottle to expel the wine into this ring-shaped frame um, that looks like a droplet of bubbles. And then the droplet is gathered mm-hmm. in the custom-made glass. So rather than being like a deep container of a glass, it's just slightly concave. It's five centimetres in diameter, and you catch okay. the droplets of the foam. And the surface tension um, helps it adhere to the glass, and then you just sort of, I guess you sort of lick it off, <laughs> for want of a better... <laughs> Expression. Champ-
0: champagne ice cream. <laughs> yeah,
1: something like that, I think. But um, the, the um, cellar master said that because of zero G, the liquid instantly coats the entire inside of the mouth, which is meant to magnify the taste sensation. So there's less fizziness, uh, but there's more mm-hmm. roundness to it. And given that that sort of thing, you know, your, your senses are dulled, and he's, but he's saying it coats the whole inside of the mouth. I don't know which to believe. I think we'd have to try it out for ourselves to uh, really get a sense of how it's working. But Yeah, the,
0: this, this episode's really making me want to just go into space and eat and drink stuff.
1: <laughs> I've never had the desire to go into space. I've just thought other people can do that. But <laughs> thinking about all the different drinks I could try in space, that's a different thing. I want to try all those. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so Mum, uh, Champagne Mum did a... Little promo by sending a celebrity on board the uh, zero gravity uh, Airbus 0G Vomit Comet type affair to test out the champagne. Um, Mm -hmm. Any guesses as to uh, who they would choose to exemplify, I guess, either space travel or champagne?
0: David Attenborough, or as we call him in Wales, Die Nature.
1: I love that you think the most sensible thing to do in this scenario is to send, what is he now, a non-agenarian into zero gravity <laughs> <laughs> as a marketing coup
0: for champagne. <laughs> um, he would be no, buying up it was... for it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, it would be a heck of a way to go can out, have a, Can have
0: a second guess?
1: Yeah, you can have a second guess.
0: Um, I'm going to say... Uh Kathy Burke but as her character from Gimme Gimme Gimme. Linda. Linda Le Hughes.
1: How <laughs> how have you maintained a career in marketing up to this point? <laughs> no. I think outside um, the box, Tim. <laughs> you, very clearly. You're nowhere near the box. You trampled on it, you tore it apart, it's in the recycling. You just use reusable bags. There was never any box. Um, <laughs> no, it was. I'm just going to tell you because this could go on. It was Usain Bolt.
0: What? I don't know why. I
1: can't figure any association there, but I'm sure he had a lovely time.
0: <laughs> Jesus Christ, he's an athlete. He doesn't bloody drink. I bet he didn't drink it. I bet he didn't drink that champagne. I bet it was like those. Um... You know the Walker's Crisps adverts? I remember reading about how Victoria Beckham, when she did the Walker's Crisp adverts years and years and years ago, she actually would spit the crisps out after doing the shot where she was eating the crisps because she didn't want to eat the crisps. I reckon that's what he did.
1: No crisp ad is going to be finer than the Mariah Carey one where she ate a crisp oh my God. like she'd never seen one in her entire life and didn't quite understand the
0: concept. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that existed I'm so glad I'm going to go straight on YouTube after this and watch it everyone <laughs> so if you good. haven't
1: seen it go and google Mariah Carey crisp advert her attempting to eat a crisp <laughs> is one of the finest things you'll ever see on film
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember when that came oh. out I, I had a packet of the crisps and I told myself I'm going to eat this entire bag like Mariah Carey and I think I got fed up after like two crisps
1: and then you just chinned it like you normally do (laughs) straight down (laughs) um back over to you my friend what else you got for me
0: yes i've got more lovely drinks that have either been sent to space or made with stuff from space Mm -hmm. um so we've got meteorite wine Um, So, it's wine aged with a meteorite that fell to Earth from space. Uh, So, it's the brainchild of a guy called Ian Hutchin, who sounds like an absolute legend. He's an English guy. He lives in Chile. If you're a drag race fan, you might say, chile. Um, Chile. So, he is chile. He's an English guy living in chile where he owns a vineyard, but he also has a passion for astronomy. Uh, so he launched his own observatory in 2017. It's so Just really casually moved to Chile, bought a vineyard, opened up an observatory. Quick
1: clarifying question. Mm-hmm. Is he single?
0: Probably. I think he should go. He sounds Good. like one of those crazy eccentric guys that just lives in the arse end of nowhere and just mm-hmm. does mad shit yeah to uh, get I mean, over li- there.
1: literally all i have on my dating profile is you must own an observatory and a vineyard which has narrowed the then, field for me in we- previous attempts i will admit but has now come into play
0: Well, you've got an excuse to go over there because the only place you can get the wine for now is from his observatory so there you go oh. Uh, so, the meteorite in question is roughly three inches in diameter. It's four and a half billion years old, and it's likely to hail from the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Uh, it crashed in Chile's Atacama Desert 6,000 years ago.
1: Or Atacama? Or Atacama? Atacama. Atacama, for other people.
0: <laughs> Atacama? At- what did I say? Atacama. Atacama. Atacama, karma So yeah. was... <laughs> it's good. Uh so that desert over in Gile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um so yeah, he is already husband material with his vineyard and his observatory, but unfortunately he doesn't own the meteorite. Don't know if that's gonna change any of your feelings it's around n- him.
1: It's not a deal breaker, but obviously I would prefer someone to own their own meteorite.
0: No. He, um, he borrowed it off a collector. Can you imagine that conversation? Um, it's that meteorite you've got. Do you mind if I just whack it in a barrel of red for you? See what happens.
1: <laughs> I would 100% say yes to that, provided I got freebies.
0: Define your freebies. I know
1: what you're like. <laughs> <laughs> of wine. <laughs> <laughs> and a little sun.
0: <laughs> Ooh, shall. <laughs> i think we should move on <laughs> I, hope, I hope
1: this poor man never hears this
0: <laughs> God, hi ian <laughs> um my last one is moon dust beer so you were talking earlier about how kind of like drinks manufacturers have teamed up with like space scientists and companies to yeah do stuff um this one's like on a smaller scale and it's quite cute even though it's like obviously a big deal I just imagine it being like two little family businesses working together it's just quite sweet what they've come up with Um, so there's a brewery in Delaware called Dogfish Head and in 2013 they wanted to launch um, a beer to celebrate the autumn equinox uh, and they came up with a beer called Celeste Jewel, it's an ale um, and they made it with lunar meteorites that had been crushed into dust, uh, which they then steeped, like you would like a tea bag, um, in their existing Oktoberfest. It sounds delicious. Hmm. Um, so the certified moon jewels that they uh, they use they're mainly made up of minerals and salts. So they help the fermentation process and add a subtle but earthiness to it. it sounds very very tasty. Obviously, uh, it's not easy to get your hands on some lunar meteorites. Um, So they teamed up with a company nearby called ILC Dover. Now, these guys make the spacesuits for NASA. So they helped them get the lunar meteorites. But then they also made, like, these really cool little um, can coolers out of the same material as the spacesuits. So the way Mm. they marketed it was quite cool. It was, you know, the the coolest can in the world essentially you're not going to find anything that's going to keep your can of beer that cold um so yeah they did that they only made 10 of the coolers obviously because they're mm. not cheap um so it was just a case of if you go to the bar you can order one of those beers you have to put your driving license behind as a deposit and then you can have your can in one of the really super duper cool coolers
1: well i think that's completely fair because i would steal it otherwise yeah.
0: Very fair. It reminds me though, um, there's a bar in Bruges where you have to give one of your shoes over. Just the one. (laughs) Um, Because they serve a beer there in like a big glass boot, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. And obviously when you're drunk, you're going to want to steal that. So you have to hand your shoe over. They put it in a cage and winch it up to the ceiling and uh, you don't get it back until you hand your glass boot back.
1: It's, I mean, it's a really funny idea. I wonder if they have a minimum quality of shoe that they accept because there's one thing having to, you know, hand over a left Jimmy Choo versus a raggedy <laughs> old climb sole.
0: Here's my flip-flop. <laughs> yeah,
1: like I'm willing to sacrifice this flip-flop for this glass version. I'm willing to, you know, take this Cinderella moment upon myself in exchange for a flip-flop.
0: But judging... Judging by how drunk we got when we were in Bruges, I probably would have walked out of there with the glass, feeling really proud of myself, not even realising that I only had one shoe on.
1: Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't (laughs) seem like too much of a deterrent to me. (laughs) No.
0: I think we should go back to Bruges, so we'll add Chile and Bruges to our list after this podcast. Mm -hmm. Go to Bruges, lose a shoe, gain a glass one. Go to Chile, marry Ian, have some meteorite wine. It's a plan. Mm-hmm.
1: Um Shall I carry on?
0: Carry on, yeah.
1: So last month, January 2021, uh there was a returning spacecraft, the SpaceX cargo dragon, which came down just off the coast of Florida, and it had been on a mission to the ISS. Uh, the, the International Space Station, to drop off lots of hardware and supplies for them. And then of course, you know, while it's there, they can load other stuff on and come back with, um, you know, with kind of extra bits of research projects and anything else they wanted to send back to Earth. Now amongst this one were 320 snippets of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon grapevines which had been individually wrapped in small bundles of soil and carefully placed in containers. And um, that was part of some ongoing research to see how vines would be affected and adapt in the conditions of space that the ISS is on. So the idea is that uh, microgravity and high levels of radiation will actually trigger those organisms to evolve and Maybe develop some more resilient traits. It's all very fantastic. For you go into space, it changes your your genetics, it changes your DNA, or at least kind of like the way your DNA behaves. That is true. We know that from from lots of studies. that uh, things do change. They actually did this study a while back where they sent one one half of twins into space and then looked at how their um, how it just kind of mutated the genetics in the meantime, and it had apparently seven percent. Mm-hmm. Um, Whoa. So they do this all the time by either sending stuff into space to see if it can grow in order to, you know, feed uh, future astronauts or whatever. So they've been growing lettuce and all that, that sort of stuff in space. This one was not to, to <laughs> start uh, giving astronauts the opportunity to make their own space wine, but to see if they could make the vines more resilient for life on Earth in this time of climate change. So they thought that vines in particular are really sensitive to the environment. And we, you know, we know that from the way their taste completely changes um, depending on the, the terroir. But also, you know, it's something that interacts with a lot of other biological components, so yeast and bacteria and polyphenols. Um so they wanted to see if they would become hardier, if they would change at all. So they're going to grow them, see how they fare in different climates, if it affects their, their taste and all that sort of stuff at all. And then start breeding them on earth um, as a result, if they are you know, better in harsher environments. But they have also sent up uh, a dozen bottles of red wine to the ISS as well. And that will return and be tasted to see how the wine flavor has been affected in March next month. For,
0: For science. For
1: science. It will be drunk by a viticulture expert mm-hmm. to see how it's behaving. So it's really interesting. Like they, um, you know, it's not just, can we do this to grow it in space? But given our changing climate and how our crops need to be much more resilient than they used to be, they're trying to accelerate that evolutionary process by bombarding it to um, new situations. I like it. Mm.
0: I love how much effort people are putting into booze.
1: <laughs> <laughs> booze leads the way. Where where booze <laughs> goes, people will follow. Uh, another sort of wine thing on space is memorabilia. Space memorabilia can be a very profitable thing if you get your hands on some of it. In 2014 there was an attempt <laughs> there was an attempt to <laughs> sell an empty bottle of wine signed by Yuri Gagarin who's the first man in space and it was put up for around 2000 euros it did not sell and this it's possibly because i think people who want space memorabilia want to really focus on the positives and the heroics of space adventure and all this kind of stuff. But this bottle has a slightly darker history. Mm -hmm. It was a bottle of Chateaumet in 1961 and it was drunk by Gagarin and also Vladimir Komarov, who was one of the early Russian cosmonauts, when they got selected for the Russian Soyuz program in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Komarov was the one who was launched in the Soyuz 1 rocket, And it had really been plagued by technical problems throughout. Um, It was, you know, it was part of, as I say, the space race. USSR really wanted to prove that they were superior to the US. So they cut a lot of corners. And they launched it in 1967 as part of that race to the moon. It went up, but then there were problems. And then the rocket crashed on re-entry and Komarov was killed. He was actually the first in-flight fatality in the history of spaceflight. So that bottle was signed, and yeah, it's, it's gone and sold as a result. It's a rather ghoulish bit of memorabilia. I actually watched um, a documentary the uh, the other day, a sort of documentary, um, the Adam Curtis one that's on iPlayer at the moment, and they show this moment in the space race where... Um, Komarov is is going to be launched in the rocket, and he knew that it was going wrong. He was like, "This isn't this isn't safe," and he agreed to go mm-hmm. up on the condition that if he died, they would display his body in an open casket.
0: Oh God!
1: Yeah. So I saw that <laughs> they showed that image, oh. and it is you know it's as bad as you can imagine. It, it is just a small like black charred mass. Oh,
0: God. Which is
1: pretty hideous. But he you know, he very clearly did that as a statement to sort of say Statements. I knew this was gonna happen. Now you now you have to look yeah. at it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Look, look at what you've done. Yeah. Awful.
1: Oh, Awful. Dark.
0: No wonder nobody wanted the bloody bottle of wine.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not the cheeriest toast in the world, is it? Um tell me yeah. something cheerier before I go on to my uh final bit.
0: Um, I've got a very tenuous link to space. Uh-huh. Um, it's a quick did you know about the Heineken star. So the five point red star on the Heineken. I mean, I know okay. it has a star, but I've it.
1: never really thought about it.
0: So that star is actually an ancient brewer's symbol.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, the four points represent the pure ingredients, which is barley, water, hops, and their unique A-yeast. A Uh, So the fifth was the unknown magic of brewing, which uh, Heineken replaced with craftsmanship, but reassured their consumers that the beer still tastes magical. So that was quite cute.
1: Oh, yes, it was tenuous, (laughs) but I think this was the best place for it. (laughs) Yeah,
0: straight after the dead charred body of a Russian astronaut. Well,
1: hey, you brought it back up again. Um, (laughs) Oh, no, I like that. All right. I've got um, one more thing I wanted to tell you about, which um, it's, it's got a sort of, well, I think one very good point and two slightly more tenuous. But either way, I couldn't talk about space without talking about Johannes Kepler. So I'm going to tell you a little oh, bit about him. You love a bit of cap. I love a bit of cap. So he's a uh, German born in 1570, 71. And when he was six years old, his mum took him to see the Great Comet of 1577. This isn't like Halley's Comet or anything else. It was one that was non-returning. So it was very, very big, very bright, came quite close to Earth. Everyone in Europe saw it. There's a lot of people who wrote about it. And, um, you know, he found this particularly inspiring. Um, And in fact, that was the comet that allowed his future mentor called Tycho Brahe to observe that these uh, these comets and these meteors fl- actually flew above the Earth's atmosphere, which sounds like, did you not know that to us? But they yeah, had very weird <laughs> ideas about how, yeah, about, you know, atmosphere and how the heavens were arranged and distance and stuff at that time. Um, but yeah, anyway, it was as a result of this, Kepler became interested in astronomy and astrology, which were the same thing at that time. You know, we're talking before the Enlightenment, we're talking before a lot of the scientific method, really. And so things like astronomy, astrology and mathematics all came under one group without, you know, seeming at odds with each other versus something like the natural sciences. Anyway, he noticed that the alignment of Saturn and Jupiter... um, you know, kind of they came together and then it moved apart again every twenty years. And in fact, we just had that alignment the other week. You could see it if you looked up in the sky. They were very bright and very close together. Um Johannes had smallpox when he was young, and that affected his eyesight and also crippled his hands. So he wasn't able to do so much of the observational work. You find like, that the actual observational work is done by a lot of his peers like Galileo uh, like Breyer, but he instead had to go and develop his mathematical theories because he just didn't have the capabilities as, as well as other people did. Um, Carl Sagan the famous Carl Sagan calls him the first astrophysicist and the last scientific astrologer which is just to point out that really in many ways he was really ahead of the game and then in others he was still very much looking back into a, a mythical past. But his main work that we know him for is planetary motion. So he built on the Copernican model of heliocentrism. So heliocentrism, that the sun is the centre of our solar system. We go around it. Um, that didn't actually start with... I say the Copernican model, that's because it was the most recent popular one. But heliocentrism started a lot earlier than that. It was the 3rd century... Um, BCE with Aristarchus of Samus uh, and even before that we knew that the earth moved rather than was this still thing that others went around um, thanks to Pythagoras but um, I, I mentioned that just because there was a, actually a lot of really good astronomy going on in ancient Greece for example but then there was this real loss of scientific works um, during the Hellenistic period and so, there's probably a lot of really good writings that confirm this already that we, we've just lost and we didn't know about. But anyway, he's building on those sorts of ideas. And what Kepler in particular concentrates on is that planetary motion is more elliptical than it is round. And it, it has things that make it look like the planets have suddenly started going backwards when obviously they haven't they're still going one direction but to us it looks like because of the way they move and that was something that copernicus hadn't um taken into account so the way that kepler in the beginning wanted to visualize this was to use platonic solids um platonic solids are just like 3d shapes so um tetrahedron which has four faces like a pyramid Cube, six Mm -hmm. faces Octahedron, eight faces dodecahedron, 12 faces, and icosahedron, 20 faces. And he said that it was like the planets uh, would go around one of these platonic solids and then within that platonic solid would be another one and that describes the motion of another planet. So that's how he visualised it and he created that model from the Mysterium Cosmographicum, which is a great name, uh, (laughs) Mysteries of the Cosmos. He made it with coloured paper to demonstrate what it would look like and how they would move and sort of sliced it in half. And he looked at this model of lots of different sort of weirdly shaped bowls, if you like, sitting within one another. And he thought, that deserves to be more than just coloured paper. I think we should make it in silver and turn it into a punch bowl.
0: Yes, finally we have arrived
1: at the <laughs> relevant drinks section. <laughs> so yeah, he thought, what a, what a great way to demonstrate his theories of planetary motion than to invite people for a drink from the punch bowl and then explain what it is. And it would be multiple punch bowls, so you could have different drinks in them. I want one very much.
0: <laughs> That's right. I'm there. I'm if, anyone's,
1: done. <laughs> if anyone's a silversmith and fancies uh, whacking that together, really appreciate it so that's that's the that's the main one i wanted to tell you about is just that he uh he created a punch bowl out of science but there's there's a couple more things i mean there's loads to say about kepler but he was very ahead of his time with lots of things he was the first one that we know of that described how uh the human eyes actually have to flip the image they're seeing so what you mm-hmm. see is upside down essentially because of the way light works and lenses and then it's actually our brains that flip it the right way up so we can understand it. But he described that. He said that he suspects that um, the images are flipped and it all gets sorted in the hollows of the brain. So, well ahead of his time in that. He was also the first mathematician. I think you made,
0: you made fun of the hollow of my brain earlier.
1: Well, I mean, there's hollow and then there's hollow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um...
1: Yeah, he also uh, was one of the first, I think, to come up with what's called the marriage problem. (laughs) Um, Wouldn't know. (laughs) That's not what your husband tells me. Um, (laughs) So, the marriage problem is um, when you are... It's best described these days as if you were to interview someone for a job. Uh, They come in and you conduct the interview. You have to decide then and there whether... That's the person you want or not. And if you turn them down, you don't get to accept them again. And you move on to the next person. And you have to decide what is the right point to stop interviewing someone and go, they're good enough or they were better than enough of the previous ones. So he was like, if you can only do that, how do you know when the right time to stop is? And he he mapped out and charted it. And that's because he was assessing his real marriage options. (laughs) He went through, I think, 11 of these before he went... Yeah, that'll do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You'll do. <laughs> Thus
1: romances a, uh, a mathematician. But he was doing that in like the early 17th century. We don't see that written down in mathematical form until 1949. So again, quite ahead of his time in terms of assessing things like probability. Um, another booze related thing, though, he also wanted to work on describing the volume of complex objects. Obviously, we originally had to, you know, uh, calculate volume of cubes and things like that. But so he chose wine barrels. He wrote a treatise <laughs> on the volume of wine barrels, which I can only imagine he had to drain quite a lot of wine barrels to uh, get through. He's
0: great. He sounds like the kind of teacher that you had in primary school where if it was a sunny day, they'd be like, should we do the next lesson outside on the field? That's Kepler.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had most of my university lectures in the pub because the lecturer said, shall we go and have our lesson in the pub? So that's straight where my brain went to rather than primary school. But um... (laughs) (laughs) that's Wales for Uh... (laughs) you. Then there's one more thing that has a slight tenuous drinks thing, but I I think is worth knowing anyway, is that his mother took him to see that great comet in 1577 uh, was a healer and herbalist so she would create you know poultices and potions for people in her in her village but this led to a problem with a woman who got into a financial dispute with um her son kepler's brother christoph and this woman claimed that katerina his mom had made her sick with an evil brew and that escalated, and two years later, in 1617, Katerina gets accused of witchcraft. And at this time in Europe, the witchcraft trials were pretty common. There was mm-hmm. not a lot of sense going on. There was r- lots of rel- uh, rising religious fervor throughout Europe, which had affected Kepler's career anyway. Um, but at this point, he was like, mm, I should probably go home. He, was, he had been in Prague. Go home and look after my mum and fight this this case Uh, so that was in 1617 in 1620 she actually gets imprisoned she's in her 80s i think kepler's mum she gets imprisoned for 14 months Uh, and she's released in october 1621 thanks to the legal defense that had been drawn up by kepler he um he took taking apart the evidence really seriously so he he brought his scientific mind to the law, which wasn't so strong on that kind of thing at that time. He said, well, the accusers don't have any strong evidence. They're only rumours. Um, and, uh, yeah, in the end, he did manage to to get a release from that. But she had a really tough time. She was subjected to, while not quite physical torture, what they would do is graphically describe the torture they were going to do to try and get people to confess uh, okay. to witchcraft. But um, she mm. died only a few months after she was released from prison. So obviously, it's toll. I'm tall. surprised. Yeesh. Yeah. So while he was working on the trial, obviously he couldn't do so much of his observational work or you know work with the other with his peers who were doing observations. So he worked on um, harmonices mundi, which means harmonies of the world. It's his harmonic theory. You probably heard of things like music of the spheres, um, mm-hmm. and this is where it comes from: the idea that everything is. Um, in some kind of cosmic harmony, they're all balanced in terms of kind of distance and speed and so forth for a reason, which leads to his third law of planetary motion. Um, and the third law of pan- planetary motion is the one essentially that was describing how gravity works. We didn't hmm. have the word for gravity then. You know, obviously, people knew that things fell to the earth, but what they weren't really understanding is that. Um, the strength of gravity is different depending on how close or far away you are to large objects of mass. So that mm-hmm. wasn't something that was understood in planetary motion until Kepler sort of named it and said it. And then Newton reads it. And in terms of gravitational theory, the rest is history. But um, yeah, that, that all kind of that time for him to think about that came about because he had to go and defend his mother against creating a cursed evil brew.
0: Kepler was a busy guy
1: he was extraordinarily busy he had an amazing life Um, and yeah it's it's worth kind of reading more about if you have the time but I will leave it there because I couldn't find any more uh, drink stories to enable me to tell you more about (laughs) Kepler (laughs) anything else my dear
0: no I'm still thinking about that silver punch bowl I I want one as well if you Mm. find anyone to make one let me know
1: will do (laughs) <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to take our protein pills and put our helmets on. Cheers, everybody!
0: Cheers! Drinks! Drinks! spin. In- Spain! In Or
1: land or sea or
0: You can always hear me
1: sing in the star Show me the
0: way
1: to go home Come on,
0: get on board. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sicky burp. <laughs>